there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. My name is Emily, and I am your host of this podcast. My goal is to spread biblical values and clarify the conservative viewpoint on a number of positions in order to bring unity and to help us all be better people, because I am definitely on that journey. Hopefully, you are also on that journey. There's so much we can all learn together. So that's why we're here. That's why I'm here. I assume that's why you're here. Maybe you're bored. Maybe your friend just told you about the podcast. Hopefully you like being here. If you do like being here, by the way, please do share the podcast with others. Also make sure to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. I would very much appreciate it. Today is National Day of Unplugging. That is the first Friday of March every year. It goes 24 hours from sundown to sundown. It wasn't so clear on the National Day calendar that I use when it starts, but I'm assuming it starts sundown on Friday and goes till sundown of Saturday, as opposed to starting sundown on Thursday and going till sundown Friday. I'm going to assume it starts sundown tonight, which just lines it up so perfectly with Shabbos. And since this day is celebrated in a way that is similar to Shabbos, we're going to go with that version. The National Day of Unplugging is exactly what it sounds like. It's a day to unplug from phones, computers, TV, a day to unplug from the social media and other media and things that consume our daily lives and keep us from focusing on what really matters. That's actually what's important, not just about the day of unplugging, but also about Shabbos, which I mention every week how important and how rejuvenating Shabbos is. This day is similar. We all need a day to unplug from TV and computers and work and all of those things. And in fact, this is a once yearly holiday, but as Shabbos is every week, I would highly recommend taking a day every week to unplug or once a month or once every other week. It's not so easy for some people to start celebrating a day of unplugging whatever baby steps you need. As I have done before, I highly encourage everyone finding their time to unplug and to truly unplug. But with the day of unplugging, as with Shabbos, it's not so much about what you're unplugging from as to what you are connecting to and what you have time to focus on when unplugging. A lot of people who are only semi-familiar with Shabbos in the Jewish community, but also in the not Jewish community, think of the Sabbath as a day of things that you can't do. You can't work. You can't go shopping. You can't drive. All of these can'ts. And one could look at the day of unplugging the same way. I can't use my phone. I can't use my computer. Can't watch TV. But the purpose is not to focus on the can'ts. The purpose is to focus on what you have the ability to connect to when you take a step away from computers. So on Shabbos, when we take a break from work, and not just a physical break, but really a mental break, letting our minds know that we are not under any circumstances doing work that day. When we truly are both physically and mentally free from all of the devices, we can focus on our family and our friends, on ourselves, on our health, on nature. We can spend time picking up a good book or playing a board game or really engaging in a meal and in a conversation with people and not just watching TV while we eat. When people think about Shabbos as a day of things that they can't do, it's no surprise that people don't want to keep Shabbos. But that's not what Shabbos is about. Shabbos is about what you can connect to. Of course, you connect also to God and this earth that he has put us on and and the reason why we are here. It is timely that National Day of Unplugging is today because in this week's Parsha, God reminds Moses 
and the Israelites how important Shabbos is. He reminds the people that Shabbos is a covenant between the people and between God, and that it's a sign and reminder that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, so that by us working six days and resting on the seventh, we are honoring what God did and remembering that each week. And celebrating Shabbos is the best way to break up your week, especially when we're all stuck at home. Every day just flows so easily into the next. You probably know what that's like when it's the end of the school year and you're going into summer or when you're on vacation from work or when maybe you leave a job or you lose a job, suddenly you have free time and you can't keep track of what day it is. Is it Monday? Is it Friday? Is it Tuesday? You have no idea. Trust me, if you start keeping Shabbos, you will know what every day is because every day is focused pretty much on Shabbos. It's either Sunday, so it's the day right after Shabbos and you are going to pick up with your work or it's Friday and you're looking forward to Shabbos and the guests you're going to have over or it's a few days before and you need to go shopping so that you have the food for Shabbos. It gives your whole week structure and it gives you a time to unplug from devices and plug in to God and to your family and to your friends. So if I haven't convinced you before with Shabbos, Hopefully I can convince you today to do a day of unplugging because it's apparently international actually day of unplugging, not just national day of unplugging. And if you go to the website, if you type in national day of unplugging reboot, there's a website where if you pledge to unplug, they'll send you a cute little sleeping bag for your phone. So if you're looking for some sort of incentive, there you go. I'm going to talk about this week's Parsha. Every Parsha has so much to teach us. So every week I want to say This week's Parsha has so much. This week's Parsha does have so much, or at least it has one huge incident, but there's still so much to teach us, even in the little moments. We'll start with a brief summary, and then I'll go into a few particular parts of the Parsha. This summary, as always, courtesy of Chabad.org. Here we go. Parsha's Kitisa. The people of Israel are told to each contribute exactly half a shekel of silver to the sanctuary. Instructions are also given regarding the making of the sanctuary's water basin, anointing oil, and incense. Wise-hearted artisans Bensalel and Oholiev are placed in charge of the sanctuary's construction, and the people are once again commanded to keep the Shabbat. When Moses does not return when expected from Mount Sinai, the people make a golden calf and worship it. God proposes to destroy the errant nation, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses descends from the mountain carrying the tablets of the testimony engraved with the Ten Commandments. Seeing the people dancing about their idol, he breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, and has the primary culprits put to death. He then returns to God to say, If you do not forgive them, blot me out from the book that you have written. God forgives, but says that the effect of their sin will be felt for many generations. At first, God proposes to send his angel along with them, but Moses insists that God himself accompany his people to the promised land. Moses prepares a new set of tablets and once more ascends the mountain, where God reinscribes the covenant on these second tablets. On the mountain, Moses is also granted a vision of the divine thirteen attributes of mercy. So radiant is Moses' face upon his return that he must cover it with a veil, which he removes only to speak with God and to teach his laws to the people. So that is a brief summary. Clearly the big event from this week is the sin of the golden calf. I want to talk about a few other things first, and then we'll come back to the golden calf. As mentioned, one of the articles of the tabernacle that is talked about this week is the water basin, which is made from copper. And there's an interesting 
teaching that goes along with the water basin. So the copper that it's made from is supposedly from the mirrors that the Israelite women had while they were in, while they were slaves in Egypt. What did they use the mirrors for? To beautify themselves so that their husbands would still be attracted to them after a long days of slavery, still want to have sex and procreate. So it was a great honor that the women's mirrors were used for this very holy vessel. But during the construction, Moses asks God if it's appropriate to have these mirrors, which were used for beautifying, which then led to sex, if it's appropriate for something that mundane to be used for a holy item. And God tells Moses that absolutely these mirrors should be used for a holy vessel. In fact, there is nothing holier than the purpose that these mirrors were used for Not only the fact that the women were trying to do something nice for their husbands, but specifically that they were beautifying themselves for the purpose of having children. Having children, Jewish or not, but in this case, having Jewish children is the most holy thing a person can do. It's the closest to God that we get. We are creating something nearly from nothing when we have children. And to have children and to be fruitful and multiply and to continue having people on this earth that we can spread the Torah to, that's the most important thing we can do. The women weren't making themselves look good just to have sex with their husbands. They wanted to have sex for the purpose of having children. And that is definitely something holy enough to be included in the tabernacle in the desert. We also learn that Betzalel becomes the artisan who constructs the Mishkan. Betzalel is 13 at the time, which is just interesting. I don't know what most of you were doing at 13. I certainly could not have been constructing anything at 13. I couldn't construct anything now. I don't really have an eye for that sort of thing. Definitely impressive and not just skills-wise, but also indicative of the kind of person he must have been to have been given the task of constructing this holy dwelling. So that's Betzalel. And then his partner, Ahaliev, was from the tribe of Dan. And Betzalel was from the tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi, that's the holiest tribe. They're the ones who are the priests in the temple are the ones who help the priests. So that's the most holy of the tribes. And Dan was sort of the least of the tribes, but they worked together. It was really important that there was someone from the greatest of the tribes and someone of the least of the tribes working together on God's dwelling, because it doesn't matter what someone's background is, whether someone is rich or poor. It doesn't matter what family someone comes from or what culture or background, or race, what matters is what people do. And having someone from the tribe of Levi and someone from the tribe of Dan teaches us that it's what we do that really matters. And moreover, that we have to work together with all types of people on all different projects. This is the most important project imaginable, right? Creating a dwelling place for God. We have to include everyone, not think that we're better because we're smarter or because we come from a better family or anything like that. We all work together to bring God into this world, which is for all of us, our main mission. And we all have to work together on that. So now let's get into the golden calf. I know it's what you've all been waiting for. So here we are. Just an interesting note before we get into some thoughts I had on the golden calf in particular, the structure of this Parsha is really interesting. So each Parsha is split into seven different readings. And on Shabbos, we read each of the seven parts, but before each one, 
Someone is called to the Torah and makes a blessing, and then the reader continues. Usually, the sections are about the same length. Not always. Some are a little bit longer than others, but generally, they're pretty equally split. This week, however, it's totally different. The first two sections are really, really long, and the last five are pretty short. The reason for this is really interesting. So when it comes to the sin of the golden calf, every tribe was represented. That is, there were people from every tribe who worshipped the golden calf, except for the tribe of Levi. There were no Levites who worshipped the golden calf. So that tribe doesn't carry any of the punishment or any of the guilt or any of the weight of that sin. When the Torah portion is being read on Shabbat, the first two sections The person who gets the blessing is from the tribe of Levi. So as not to have someone come up for the blessing for the portion that talks about the golden calf, who's from one of the tribes, the section that has the calf in it is given to a Levite. So that section is kept really long so that only a Levite will be called up for that Parsha because we don't want to embarrass someone for having to be called up to the Torah to make a blessing about something negative that their ancestors did, even though it's thousands of years ago and the person getting the blessing isn't to blame. We just are very careful of people's feelings in Judaism. It's actually interesting how careful of people's feelings we're supposed to be. It's said that if we slander someone and ruin their name, it's the same as killing them. It's very important to be thoughtful of people's feelings. And we learn that in so many places in the Torah. And this is just one of the interesting places just from how the Parsha is broken up. We learn how important it is to focus on not hurting people's feelings. So where does the golden calf come from? Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And he's supposed to be up there for 40 days while the people miscount. And they're worried that he's not coming back they decide that they need a new leader because Moses isn't coming back. And for some reason, they go to Aaron and ask Aaron to make an idol, which is interesting to me. Why don't they just say, hey, Aaron, you've been leading us along with your brother this whole time. Do you want to lead us? It must say something about human nature that instead of going to the next logical option, I mean, Moses is right-hand man, his brother, he's been there the whole time. Instead of asking him to lead, they ask Aaron to make them an idol. Is it something about our, as humanity, our trust in things as opposed to a person? I don't know where it comes from, and I never thought about it until this year, but why don't they just ask Aaron to take Moshe's place? So Aaron listens to their request, tells them to bring him gold from the earrings of their daughters and wives and sons, and he will create something for them. So they do, and he creates the calf. And then they revel around it, which some commentaries suggest that the specific Hebrew word that is used for revel implies sexual revelry. So orgies and really not kosher kind of stuff going on there. When we learn about the sin of the golden calf, in schools. Traditionally, when we learn about the sin of the golden calf, Aaron is exonerated from any amount of guilt. The explanation that's given is that the reason that Aaron asked people to get jewelry from their family members was a way of stalling them. He hoped that the wives and the other family members wouldn't give the jewelry to their husbands. And he just wanted to delay them long enough until Moses would come back because he knew Moses was coming back. So it was all a delay tactic. He didn't actually mean to do anything. And when he put the gold in the pot, it wasn't he who actually brought it up as a calf, but it was some troublemakers in the camp who made it happen. So Aaron is generally exonerated. And we don't see it 
In this Parsha, but we do learn later in Deuteronomy 9.20, Moses recounts that God was mad at Aaron for this transgression, and he was actually mad enough to destroy him. But Moses, in addition to calming God's anger at the Israelites in general, calmed God's anger at Aaron. And whether Aaron was trying to stall the people or whether he was just misguided, the creation of the calf itself might also have been a delay tactic a, okay, I'll make this calf for you people, you'll be happy, and then Moses will be here in five minutes and we can all forget this. A delay tactic, misguided. The only thing I have to imagine is that he wasn't really meaning to do anything wrong. He wasn't trying to actually create an idol. He knew who God was. And for me, the proof of this is that Aaron is still a priest after this. He isn't killed right away. Even if Moses did calm God after this moment, you would still think that maybe Aaron would be removed from his prominent role, but he wasn't. So I have to think that there is more going on here that Aaron was trying just to stall the people or he was misguided, but he wasn't doing something intentionally evil in creating the golden calf. Another interesting thing, which I never put together until this year when I was reading on the Parsha, is that when Moses breaks the tablets, he already knows that the people are doing wrong. He has a conversation with God when he is still at the top of Mount Sinai, when God tells Moses what's going on, that the people have created this idol and they're dancing around it, and Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, don't destroy them. If you destroy them, then people will say that you took them out of Egypt just for the purpose of destroying them, What's the point? They're your people. And then Moses descends, and then he's angered by what he sees, and then breaks the tablets. And it's interesting because he already knows what's going on, and he calmed God. So it's interesting that he is still angry. And the only thing I can think of is that Moses is very much acting like a parent, interceding with a principal or law enforcement or something like that, and not wanting his children to be disproportionately punished, still loving them and still knowing that they can do better, but still being angered by what they did, just not wanting someone else to enact the punishment necessarily, though God is the one who ends up enacting the punishment. So maybe there's no parallel for this. It's just something that I never thought about before. And it's interesting that he knew what was going on and he's still angry, but it does seem like how a parent would act. You want your kids to do better. You have compassion for them, but you're still angry when you see them doing wrong. Moshe and God have a conversation back and forth about God wants to destroy the people. Moses tells him not to. God says, I'll make you a nation. And Moses says, no, stick with your people. Don't make a nation of me. If you're going to erase them, erase me. And there's this whole back and forth. Finally, Moses says, if I have found favor in your eyes, do this thing and let me see your glory. And God relents, but says, no one can actually see my full glory. I'll pass in front of you and you will see my back. It's a very interesting passage. There are a lot of thoughts on what it means. That's not what I want to talk about right now. I just wanted to explain what's going on to set up what happens when he does pass in front of Moses. God says the following. He says, Lord, Lord, benevolent God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, preserving loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, yet he does not completely clear of sin. He visits the iniquity of parents on children and children's children to the third and fourth generations. So that is what God says when he passes before Moses. Moses echoes this later, I want to say in Deuteronomy, but I don't remember exactly where this phrase, which comes to be known as the 13 attributes of mercy, is said every day 
in daily prayers, in the morning prayers, it's also said numerous times on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are extremely holy days when we focus a lot on our past transgressions and we ask God for forgiveness and we are reminding ourselves and reminding him that he is a compassionate and gracious God, that he is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and that he forgives iniquity. But he also punishes and he visits the iniquity of parents on children and children's children, which is a topic we've discussed before about children being punished for the sins of their parents. This phrase here, that he visits the iniquity of parents on children and children's children to the third and fourth generations, is usually understood to mean that only if the children persist in the same negative ways, and that if children change their ways and repent and become better people, that they're not punished for the sins of their parents. We have talked about this before, and it definitely deserves further exploration. I'm not going to go into that today. Generally, though, I would remind people that God punishes children for the sins of their parents. But that's God. That's not us. It's not our responsibility to punish people. It's certainly not our responsibility to punish children for the sins of their parents. These 13 attributes of mercy are talking specifically about God and what he does, not what we do. What I did want to talk about of these 13 attributes of mercy is that God both forgives and also punishes the fact that we need both. We need to know that God punishes. We also need to know that he forgives. Why do we need to know that he forgives? Because if he doesn't forgive us, then we have absolutely no incentive, no reason, no logical reason to try to be better people. If we have no chance to come back from the mistakes we make, then there's no reason to try to be better. The first time we eat something not kosher, we might as well just continue not eating kosher because we can never be forgiven. The first time that we cheat on a test, We'll just continue cheating on tests because we'll never be forgiven anyway. We can never come back. We can never improve ourselves. So we might as well just keep doing that thing. So we have to know that God forgives. And we also have to really mean it when we are repentant. We can't just flippantly say, I'm sorry, and then go back to doing the same thing. We have to really mean that we're sorry and fix our behavior. So we need to know that God forgives because that's the only incentive we have for becoming better people because God knows that we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. We know we make mistakes. So we have to know that we're able to make mistakes, but learn from them and become better people. We also need to know that God punishes because if God doesn't punish, then there's no reason to try to avoid doing the bad things. There might be a reason from a person-to-person standpoint. Maybe we don't want to break the law We don't want our boss to find out that we're cheating because then we'll lose our job. So there's sort of a personal reason not to do bad. But but even then, those are punishments. They're just not punishments from God. We need punishments. We need to know that there are limits to what we can do. And when we do things that are wrong, that there will be consequences for us. If people think they can get away with things, then they do them. And the reason we need to know that God punishes is because sometimes we can get away with things. We might be able to steal something from a store without anyone catching us. We might be able to cheat on a test without the teacher seeing. There are things we can get away with, but remembering that God punishes reminds us that even when we think we're getting away with it, there is someone watching and we shouldn't do that bad thing. So we need both forgiveness and punishment. We need compassion and punishment. We also need it. I know I said before that this is describing God, and it's true, specifically in this case that 13 attributes of mercy are describing God. It doesn't mean we can't also learn from it how to act for ourselves. What we can learn is that 
we need to act with both compassion and justice. We know of God that it's very specific, that he preserves loving kindness for thousands. So for thousands of generations, he acts kindly to the people who do good and who follow in his ways and their children and their children and their children for thousands and thousands of generations for the good. For the bad, it's three to four generations he punishes them. So so there is definitely more compassion than punishment. But for us, we need both. And we don't have those specific numbers, the thousands of loving kindness and the third and fourth generations for punishment. I don't think that those numbers are necessarily lessons for us, though if I had to choose today, should people are on the side of being more compassionate or more focused on punishment, I would say people should be more compassionate. But we're humans and we don't see the full thing in the way that God does and we don't have his same well ability, but also right to punish as he does. So the takeaway for us is just that we need both in our lives. I don't know what the balance is. It depends upon the situation. It depends upon the people involved. There might not be, there probably isn't an absolute of how compassionate or how punishing we should be, but we do need both. We need to love our children and forgive them when they make mistakes, but we also need to hold them to standards and let them know when they've done something wrong. We need to love our neighbors and we also need to correct people when they're doing something immoral. So we need both justice and judgment and compassion and loving kindness and forgiveness. I'm not here to tell you what that balance is. Figuring that out is part of the lifelong journey that we're all on of being better people, of being people that can bring God into this world and thereby make the world a better place. And one other way of making the world a better place is by always being a little kinder than necessary. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro-outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day!